God, I wish you would come down and do something to fix it. I'm sure that's what Adam said when he learned that his son Cain had killed his other son Abel so that the first parents had to form funeral plans. I'm sure that Joseph said something like that when his brother sold him into slavery to the Midianite merchants as they were making their way to Egypt. Job said something like that. The day that he lost seven sons and three daughters, all of his livestock and every shred of his prestige. Jonah probably said something like that. When he was uh, swirling in seaweed and swimming in the foul stench of the acidic belly of the whale. Daniel probably said that as he locked eyes with hungry lions. Undoubtedly, Martha said that when Jesus did not even show up for her brother's funeral. Mother Mary said that when she stared at her darling son as he was precariously dangling on a cross made of wood. God, I wish you would come down and do something to fix it. That thought is not just on the hearts and minds of biblical characters. Even present day saints have that same thought. Chad thought something like that when the doctors told him he had a brain tumor. Stephanie sobbed that when she received the report that her four-year-old boy had leukemia. Sam whispered that as his boss came in and told him that even though you've given 27 years to the company, you're fired. Brian thought that. The day that his wife came in and said, I no longer love you, I want a divorce, there's somebody else. Doug and Vicky, they prayed that when their 22-year-old son came in from college just to tell them that he's gay. Stacy, the 16-year-old cheerleader, oh, she screamed that when the pregnancy test came back positive. The citizens of Hoover, they've been saying that since that shooting that took place on the evening of Thanksgiving. God, I wish you would come down and do something to fix it. If you've ever spoken anything like that, I want you to know that you're not alone. You just might have more in common with Isaiah than you ever thought possible. Isaiah is the prophet of God who lived 700 years before Christmas. He served and ministered during the days of the divided kingdom with Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Isaiah saw firsthand the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. For in 722, the Assyrians came in and overtook that northern kingdom. And Isaiah foretold with 
with vivid accuracy the demise of the southern kingdom of Judah, which would eventually take place in 586 BC when those barbaric Babylonians rumbled into town, overtook Judah, and torched the holy city of Jerusalem. And numerous times Isaiah, throughout his ministry, would say, God, I wish you would come down and do something to fix it. The book of Isaiah is a masterpiece. It's a microcosm of the Bible, actually. There are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. There are 66 books in our Bible. The first 39 chapters are like the first 39 books of the Bible. They give word of condemnation and judgment. But then beginning in chapter 40 and for the remaining 27 chapters, very reminiscent of the 27 chapters or books of the New Testament, it is Isaiah who foretells of a great glorious salvation of God. And even the gospel is found in Isaiah. This morning I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 64. Give your attention to those 12 verses of that chapter. And once you've found your sacred spot in the sacred text, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Isaiah chapter 64. I'll begin at verse 1. I'll read through verse 12. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all like uh, shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you for you've hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Yet, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a desert. Even Zion is a desert. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire. And all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, O oh Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? 
This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. On three occasions in our passage, Isaiah pleads with God to come down. We first come across it in verse 1. We find it again in verse 2, a third time in verse 3. Oh Lord, rend the heavens. The word rend means rip open. Isaiah could visualize uh, the, the ripping of the skies similar to a child that rips open the presents under the Christmas tree on Christmas morning. Oh God, rip open, rend open the heavens and come down among your people. Isaiah was convinced that all God had to do was show up and everything would be all right. If God just appeared, if he just flexed his muscles just a bit, if he moved in our midst, then everything would be okay and the wrongs would be made right. All God has to do is just show up. Please, oh Lord, come down. He asked God to show up not once or twice, but three times. Oh Lord, come down. And when you come down, the mountains will tremble. And when you come down, nations will quake. You've come down before, and Isaiah says, I'm just asking for you to come down again. The God who did it in the past, I want you to do it again. Please come down as you did before. For certainly God came down on Mount Moriah. He provided the ram caught in the thicket for Abraham so that Abraham could sacrifice that ram in place of his son Isaac. Oh, God came down as the children were being led by Moses and they came between a rock and a hard place with the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh and his army behind them. And God came down and parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could cross on dry ground. Oh, certainly God came down for Elijah on Mount Carmel and through the prophet, it is God who defeated the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, proving once and for all that he is the only God of the universe. And Isaiah the prophet is saying, just come down again. Oh, come down and the mountains will tremble. Come down and nations will quake. Come down and flex your muscles and all the wrongs will be made right. Just please, please show up and show off. He says, God, there is no one like you. You are unparalleled in history. No one can match your majesty. No one can usurp your sovereignty. You are great. You're glorious. You are magnificent. You are majestic. You are tremendous. Oh, God, no eye has seen or ear has heard any God but you. And you are a God who always acts on behalf of those who wait for him. That word wait is an important word in our passage. It's a word that, that means that you have a, a patient, expectant, confident faith. Those who wait on the Lord, they wait with a hopeful expectation. They wait with a confident faith in God that God will do what he said he will do, that he will show up, that he will come down. Oh God, you act on behalf of those who wait for you. They wait with confidence, waiting with expectation, waiting with patience because we acknowledge that his ways are greater than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So as your people, we wait for you. 
It is Isaiah who then realizes in an aha moment that even though we know about you, and even though we know stories of old where you have come down in the past, and even though we acknowledge that you are unparalleled in all of human history, yet we continue in our sin. At the end of verse 5, Isaiah asks one of the greatest questions of life. How then can we be saved? We know stories of you. We've been told by our forefathers who you are and how powerful you are. We've been told what you expect. We've been given your word. We've been given your witness. We've been given your power. We, we have at our disposal you, the great God of the universe, and yet we continue to persist in our sin. How can we be saved? It's a fundamental question of life. Every person must ask it. And every person needs to answer it. How then can we be saved? In verses 6 and 7, he gives a couple of analogies. Analogies that describe just how sinful we are. He says our righteous acts are nothing more than filthy rags before the Lord. We are like uh, dried, shriveled leaves that the wind blows away. The Bible is not G-rated. I don't even think the Bible is PG-rated. I think there are times in sacred scripture that it is restricted. It is R-rated. When Isaiah gets to this portion of the passage in Isaiah 64, he wants to be very picturesque. He doesn't want to be grotesque, but he wants to be very picturesque. He wants to show us that we are unclean and unhealthy. So he says that our righteous acts are filthy rags unto the Lord. It is Alec Motier in his commentary on Isaiah who accurately describes that the filthy rags that Isaiah has in mind are the cloths that a woman would use in her menstrual cycle. Isaiah is saying our best Deeds, our righteous acts, the best thoughts that we have, the, the best attitudes and actions that, that, that flow out of our lives, our righteous acts are nothing more than menstrual rags before the Lord. And what do you do with used menstrual rags? What do you do with filthy rags? Well, you can't clean them. You throw them out, and in most cases, in those days, you just burned them because there's nothing you can do with them. They are so filthy, so touched, so tainted. There's no way you can reuse them. So a woman would just take those rags and throw them out and burn them away. And Isaiah, in graphic ways, says this is what our righteous acts are like before the Lord. Our best effort, the greatest thing we can do for God is nothing more and filthy rags before God. We are totally and completely unclean. We can't clean ourselves. We can't get rid of the dirt that's embedded in us. We are touched by sin from top to bottom, inside and out. 
And on our best days, the greatest things that we do for God are nothing more than filthy menstrual rags before the Lord. We're unclean. And we're unhealthy. He uses a second analogy. He says, we're, we're like a, a shriveled up leaf that falls from the tree. Now we in Alabama, in the fall of the year, we can understand leaves that fall from the trees. And we know there's no life in that leaf. That leaf is crumply and shriveled up and, and, uh, and, and, it, and it blows away with the mighty wind. And Isaiah says, our sin sweeps us away like a mighty wind. All we are is a leaf. We're a dead leaf. You look out in your yard and you think to yourself, where did all those leaves come from? I just cleaned the yard yesterday and here they are. My neighbor's leaves have become my leaves, right? Because a mighty wind blows. Because it's nothing more than a dead leaf. There's no life. There's no health in it. This is very reminiscent of what the Apostle Paul will write in Ephesians chapter 2. That we are dead in our sins and transgressions. Spiritually speaking, we are stillborn before the Lord. We are dead. We are lifeless. We are unclean. We are unhealthy. We are, are tragically tainted by sin. And there's no way that we can make ourselves moral. There's no way we can make ourselves pure. No way we can make ourselves clean. So Isaiah asks a fundamental question. How can we be saved? How in the world can we be saved? And in verse 8, he supplies the answer. And the answer is that he is pleading on the relationship that he has with God. And God is our father. Because he's father and we're children. Because he is the potter and we are his pottery. Because he is the artisan and we are his artifacts. The only way that we can be saved is based on the relationship that is forged and made through the Father to us. But you are our Father. There's something special and significant about a relationship between a father and a child. And in those days, and it's still true today, that that relationship cannot and ought not be severed. There are only two people on planet earth that can call me father. Only two people that can call me dad. Out of like seven billion, only two. Only two can call me father. Molly Grace Watkins and Nathan Watkins. Those are the only two that can call me dad. And we have a special bond, a special relationship, a relationship that cannot be severed. I could never disown them. Now they might disobey me. They might disregard my commands. They might try to disavow my authority, but I could never disown them. And in the same way, God is our father. We are his children. There may be times when we disappoint him. There may be times when we disobey him. Maybe times when we try to disavow his authority over our life, but God the father will never disown us. He is daddy and we are his children. And it's based on that relationship that Isaiah says, this is our only hope. The only chance we've got 
is the fact that you are our father. You're our father. And it's a relationship that you've established and it cannot be severed. For God, you would never disown us. Isaiah speaks of future events with as much certainty as if they'd already happened. I've already told you that Isaiah lived during the days of the divided kingdom, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. He personally saw Israel fall. But he wasn't alive when Judah fell. The southern kingdom of Judah fell in 586 BC. And Isaiah speaks about the upcoming, impending, certain destruction and demise of the southern kingdom of Judah. So he asks the question, how long will you withhold yourself from us? Is there anything that can separate us? Because suffering is coming. And in fact, he speaks of it with such certainty that he speaks in past tense that The cities lie in ruin. Jerusalem in desolation. That's exactly what's going to happen when the barbaric Babylonians come in. And then he speaks about that glorious temple where our forefathers praised your holy name. And that temple has been burned to ground. And the barbaric Babylonians torched the holy city of Jerusalem. And they burned the sacred temple in 586 BC. And Isaiah looks to the future and he sees with certainty what's going to happen. And so he writes it in our passage in past tense as if it already taken place. That's what the prophets always did. Because the vision that they received from God was a certain vision. And Isaiah asked the question, will you keep yourself from us? We've persisted in sin. Will you keep yourself from us? Will you be silent forever? Will you punish us beyond measure? That's how he ends the chapter. Those are the questions that he asks. And if you're not careful, you'll think to yourself, he doesn't even answer them. But yet he writes it in such a way that he's implying an answer even as he poses the question. But the question is a great question. Oh God, will you be silent forever? God, will you punish us beyond what we can handle, beyond measure? Will you hold yourself back from us? I get to the end of Isaiah 64 and I say to myself, our only remedy is for God to rescue us. That's the only hope we have. Our only remedy is for God to rescue us. And I'm convinced that's what Isaiah sees. This is what he foretells earlier in Isaiah Isaiah said the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will give him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why? Because our only remedy is for God to rescue us. Those walking in darkness, Isaiah will say, have seen a great light. For the light has come. For unto us is born this day. Unto us a child is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. 
Why does he write that? Because the only remedy we have is for God to rescue us. Isaiah also writes, we like sheep have all gone astray. Why would he say that? Because he acknowledges that the only remedy we have is for God to rescue us. And Isaiah will say, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastisement that brings us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Why does he write those words? Because Isaiah, the prophet of God, understands that the only remedy we have is for God to rescue us. Isaiah asked the question, will you be silent forever? The last prophet to speak was a man by the name of Malachi. And after Malachi said, thus saith the Lord, there was no prophet to stand up to speak the voice of God for 400 years. There was silence. And God imposed a gag order upon himself. He did not raise another prophet. No one stood up to say, thus saith the Lord. For four centuries, 400 years, there was silence. Isaiah, in Isaiah 64, is asking the question, will your silence go on forever? And the answer is no, because John the Baptist will burst onto the scene. And what will he quote? He'll quote Isaiah chapter 40. A voice in the desert makes smooth paths for him. Why does Isaiah write this? Because he knows that our only remedy is for God to rescue us. Isaiah's last question is, will you punish us beyond measure? I peer into the Bethlehem stable and I see a Christ child that is both fragile and unstoppable because our only remedy is for God to rescue us. I read the story. I see how Jesus was raised in poverty and obscurity. He was there in that little town called Nazareth. And Jesus, about the age of 30, began his public ministry. And for three years, Jesus opened the eyes of the blind, unstopped deaf ears, enabled the lame to walk, even raised the dead back to life. All of his actions were pointing to this one truth that our only remedy is for God to rescue us. And after a three-year ministry, it was Jesus who was handed over to the Roman rulers. They took him outside the city of Jerusalem. He stumbled and staggered through the streets as a drunken man with a cross beam on his back. He went up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. There, the Roman soldiers stretched him wide and raised him high. And Jesus endured our hell upon himself for a few hours one Friday afternoon to the point that he declared, it is finished. And when he said, it is done, he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Isaiah is asking the question, will you, God, punish us beyond measure? And the answer is, no, I'm not going to punish you, but I will punish my son, Jesus the Christ. And Jesus will take the whipping that you deserve. And Jesus will die in your stead. And Jesus will take the punishment that you and I should have meted out against us. And Jesus will writhe in pain until he says it is finished. He'll bow his head, give up the ghost. His body will take it, be taken off the cross, placed into a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, he'll come forth out of the grave to give us life eternal. Why? Because the only remedy that we've got is for God to rescue us. So on this day, when I read and hear of tumors and tragedy and cancer and inoperable diseases, 
When I hear of sickness and sadness, setback and shootings. When I hear about families in disarray, divorce, promiscuity, adultery. When I hear about unemployment, when I hear about all types of headaches and and heartaches and hurt that is manifested in our life, your life and mine. When I hear all of this and people ask the question, God, I wish you would come down and do something to fix it. God, I wish you would come down and do something to fix it. God, I wish you would come down and do something to fix it. I hear God the Father whisper in my heart, I did. I did come down and I did fix it. I have come down and I am fixing it. And one day I will come down again and I will fix it for all time and eternity. For there's coming a moment when God the Father will look to the Son and say, Jesus, go get your bride. And Jesus will rip open the skies. Jesus will peel back the clouds. He will mount his white horse. He'll descend. He will right all the wrongs. He will rescue us from this world because our only remedy is for God to rescue us. Friends, I want you to know this morning that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Our only remedy is for God to rescue us. The only remedy that we have is the only remedy that anybody can have, even outside the church. So what do we do? We receive this remedy by faith. We know that Jesus died on the cross for us and that God came on a rescue mission to seek and to save that which was lost. And by faith, we go from death unto life, from unrighteousness to righteousness. Because God has declared that nothing can sever my relationship with you. God the Father has said, I will never disown you. I will provide all that you need in Christ. Oh, my friends, I'm reminded of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. Therefore, I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, our only remedy is for God to rescue us. And today we receive that by faith. And then we go from this place and we show and share and shine the truth of the gospel. Because the only remedy we have is the only remedy they have. The only remedy for a lost world is for God to rescue us. And I don't know about you, but I can hear the Father say, I did. I've come to rescue you so that nothing can sever my relationship with you. Isaiah says, oh God, come down and nations will quake. Oh God, come down and mountains will tremble. Oh God, you come and every tongue will confess 
every knee will bow and everyone will have to admit that Christ is Lord. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We acknowledge that you are a good father and you love us more than we could ever imagine. And oh, Father, I'm just convinced that there's somebody today who needs to be rescued. Somebody today who needs the only remedy for a lost humanity, and it's Jesus Christ. Lord, if that person is listening to my voice, I pray that when the first note is struck and sung, that individual will come forward and take one of the pastors by the hand and say, Pastor, I need that Jesus. I need that remedy in my life. And Father, I know and I pray that we have family members and friends and co-workers and classmates and teammates and we know individuals that are lost and they do not have a saving relationship with you. They cannot call you God our Father. So Lord, I pray for them and help us to be bold in sharing the good news of the gospel that you have come on a rescue mission to redeem us as your children. In Jesus' name, amen.